be, uh, may we always be in awe of you. May we always hunger and thirst for your word. Lord, just do something incredible in and through us. I pray that you would be with our study tonight, that you would guide our thoughts and help us to remain on track. And our ultimate goal, Lord, is to know you. And I just pray that this study will help facilitate that. We ask you be with the workers and the kids in Awana across the street, that you would protect them, and Lord, that your word would go forth. And if any anyone has wandered into any of our services that has never believed in you for their eternal salvation, may they do that before it's everlastingly too late. Lord, I ask you for your help. I need you desperately. I pray that you would allow me to have the clarity of thought to communicate this truth for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Even from the beginning, I have declared it to you. Isaiah receives a prophecy from God about people that are 150 years into the future before this prophecy will come to pass, before this prophecy will <clears throat> be unfolded. And I find it amazing, and this is where some of the critics of God's Word, they come and they say, well, it's too precise. How could someone give a prophecy and then 150 years later it come true? Well, the way that happens is God gave Isaiah the prophecy. And so they say, well, it, it was written after the fact. That's why it's so accurate. No, God is sovereign. God's in control. And God orchestrated this. And it is so important. This is our last prophecy that we'll hear concerning Babylon and the Chaldeans. This is it. He moves on from this in chapter 49 and following. So let's go to verse number 1. I want you to notice the character of the people. Notice the character of the people. And keep in mind, he's speaking 150 years before this is going to come to fruition and before these people were actually on the earth. The character of the people. Verse 1, Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel. It's very clear he's speaking to Israelites. And have come forth from the wellsprings of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord, and make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth, or in righteousness. For they call themselves after the holy city and lean on the God of Israel, the Lord of hosts, is his name. I have declared the former things from the beginning. They went forth from my mouth, and I caused them to hear it. Suddenly I did them, and they came to pass. Because I knew that you were an obstinate, and your neck was an iron sinew, and your brow bronze. Even from the beginning I have declared it to you. Before it came to pass, I proclaimed it to you, lest you should say my idol has done them, and my carved image and my molded image have commanded them. The Lord reveals to Isaiah the people that, to whom he will write this prophecy will be an obstinate, stiff-necked, hard-headed people. Notice what he says here. They're called, in verse 1, who are called by the name of Israel, who swear by the name of the Lord. They make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth and righteousness. Now, what they said and what they did were two different 
things. How many of you know that just because someone says something is not necessarily what they do, i.e. politicians, right? We all understand that. And God says of this people, Israel, speaking of them in the future, that what they said and what they did were two different things. God can speak in the past, or in the present, excuse me, about the future in past tense because He knows the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. And He says about the character of the people that they were sayers, they weren't doers. There's vastly a difference. He says that they're obstinate. If you were to look up obstinate on the free online dictionary, it says stubbornly refusing to change one's opinion or chosen course of action despite one's attempts to persuade one to do so. That perfectly sums up Israel if you study the history of the nation of Israel. They were an obstinate people. They were stubbornly refused to repent or to change their minds or to do what they were supposed to do even though, even in spite of God's warnings to them, they continued down that path. They were an obstinate people. They were stiff-necked, hard-headed people. Your neck was an iron sinew. Your brow, bronze. Our terminology would be stiff-necked, hard-head. This is the people Israel. If you study the history of Israel, there's cyclical behavior. They go in cycles. God blesses them. In their blessing, they turn to idols. And they do all manner of, of sin. God brings judgment upon them. They repent. They get the blessings of God. And the whole cycle starts all over again. All over again. This is the character of the people. And many of you sitting here, like I may have thought, why doesn't God just go ahead and wipe them out? Why did He choose these people? If God knows everything, why did He choose these people knowing that they were stiff-necked, that they were hard-headed, and they were obstinate? Why did He choose them? Well, I can't rightly say that other than God has His own plan and that He has chosen this nation for His namesake, not their namesake, and God's going to work and keep His promise. This is the character of the people. But I want you to notice, secondly, the goodness of God. Notice the goodness of God. Verse 6. You have heard, see all this, and I will declare it not. Or you will, excuse me, and will you not declare it? I have made you hear new things from this time, even hidden things, and you did not know them. They are created now and not from the beginning. And before this day, you have not heard them, lest you should say, of course, I knew them. Surely you did not hear. Surely you did not know. Surely from long ago your ear was not opened. For I knew that you would deal very treacherously and were called a transgressor from the womb. Look at verse 5. I forgot to mention verse 5. Even from the beginning I have declared it to you. The goodness of God was this. First of all, in Revelation. In Revelation. This is hugely important. He revealed the, His goodness, first of all, in His prophecies. 
He's speaking to them and he's telling, you've heard. You've seen things that are mystery, things that have, uh, have not been declared before, things that have been hidden. You've seen and no one else has known these. I'm going to give you new things. The fact, listen to me guys, please. The fact that God speaks is a testament to his goodness. Is revealed in his prophecies. Even from the beginning, I declared it to you. You know, you go back in history, and it was a phenomenal thing. The nation of Israel, God so led them. He would lead them at night by a pillar of fire, and in the day by a cloud. God revealed he was good to them in their prophecies. He gave them the prophets. And everything that God says comes true. 150 years from this prophecy to exactly fulfillment. Because God said it would. The goodness of God, number two, is revealed in His mercy. In His mercy. Verse 9. For my namesake, I will defer my anger. And for my praise, I will restrain it from you, so that I do not cut you off. There was nothing special about Israel. God didn't look at Israel and say, wow, you know, you guys are great, and because you're all great, I'm going to stay my anger. No, God says, for my name's sake. Because I gave my word, because I made my covenant with Abraham, that's the reason why you haven't been totally wiped out. And God, because of his character, he would defer his anger. The many times that Israel turned her back on the Lord, and yet time after time after time, he gave them mercy. He did it, verse 9, for his namesake. Verse 11, for my own sake, for my own sake I will do it. For how shall my name be profaned? I will not give my glory to another. It's revealed in his mercy. But understand this, at the heart of His mercy, at the heart of His goodness, is He keeps His word. He keeps His word. Not only is the goodness of God revealed in His prophecies, revealed in His mercy, but it's revealed in His refinement. Look at verse 10. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. The fact that God would test them with affliction to purify them, to make them better, is a testament to His love. Humanly speaking, this is what we do. We'll wipe them off the face of the map. They're going to be that way. We'll just, I'll show you if you're going to be that abstinent and you're going to be that stiff-necked and you're going to be that hard-headed and after all these things I've done for you, I'm just going to wipe you off the face of the map. That's what we would do. But not God. He's rich in mercy. And his mercy is revealed in his refinement. You see, he could have discarded the nation of Israel, but he refined them. And in that day, in the future, when Jesus Christ comes and steps foot on the Mount of Olives, and he rules and reigns as king, and that faithful remnant enters into his kingdom with him, that refinement will be done finally. The refinement of Israel will be completed.
So God begins with the character of the people. The people are not even alive yet. And he reveals this to Isaiah, the character of the people. He reveals the goodness of God. But ultimately, he's coming to the plan, his plan, the plan of God. Verse 12, please. <laughs> Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, my called. Notice what he says. I am he. I am the first. I am also the last. Boy, we've heard that before in the New Testament, haven't we? I'm Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end. Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth. Um, it's interesting to me that in the scriptures, many a times when God speaks and he's talking about his plan, how he includes his creative work, his creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It was not an afterthought. It was not something that God said, hmm, I think I'll create heaven and earth. This was God's always plan. This was his always plan. And I know no other way to say it grammatically. This was his always plan. He always planned for the creation of his world. Knowing the fall. Knowing the redemption. Knowing the glorification that would come. And the making the reconciliation. And he says, listen, I am he. I'm the first and also the last. Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand has stretched out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up together. We talked about this uh, a little bit Sunday. Power in his words. When I call to them, they stand up together. All of the earth, all the creation. So part of God's plan was the creation of the world. Secondly, the calling of Israel. God didn't say, hmm, Israel looks pretty. That's a beautiful country. I think I'll take it. No, God had a plan in calling Israel his chosen people. It was part of his plan. The Bible tells us in the Old Testament, he was calling to himself a people for himself. God called Israel. Israel didn't wake up as a nation and say, we choose God. No, God chose them. And he called them. All of you, verse 14, assemble yourselves and hear who among them has declared these things. Now he's about to pull into this plan. You got Israel. And God has shown Isaiah some things that are going to happen with Babylon taking them captive. And it was not pleasant. But he is going to show them that along with calling Israel, he can call men who were not godly men for his purposes. God can use whoever he wants, however he wants, for whatever purpose he wants, because he's God. And so he turns from the creation of the world and the calling of Israel to the calling of Cyrus. Who was Cyrus? Cyrus was the leader of the Persians, who took over the Babylonians, who took wiped them out. 
And he called Cyrus. Look at verse 14. The Lord loves him. Now there's one or two or maybe more scholars who believe that in this verse 14 here, the Lord loves him. They say he couldn't be talking about Cyrus because um, Cyrus was really never a believer. He was just used by God. And so it has to be talking about the Messiah. No, he gets to the Messiah later. I believe in the context, he shall do his pleasure on Babylon. It was Cyrus in Persia that took Babylon over and destroyed the Chaldeans. And so God called Cyrus to come in and take over the Babylonians and set the people free from, from that Babylonian captivity. Look at verse 15. I, even I have spoken, yes, I have called him. I brought him and his way I will prosper. He's speaking of Cyrus. God chose Cyrus. He called him for his purpose. And so where does this calling of Cyrus lead to? Well, it leads to the calling of the Messiah. Look at verse 16. Come near to me. Now, in my Bible, me is capitalized. And the reason it's capitalized, because it speaks of deity. That's why me is capitalized. Um, if you're using the King James Version, I'm using the New King James. If you're using the King James Version, yours may not be capitalized. But mine, a bug flip my nose. I don't know where it came from. But mine is capitalized because now the, the, the writers knew that he transitions into the, the, the Messiah, the coming Messiah. Come near to me, hear this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, I was there. Now watch this. This is powerful. This is an Old Testament reference to Trinity. Huge. And now... The Lord God and His Spirit have sent me, capitalize. The Father, the Holy Spirit have sent me, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, all right here in a testimony of the triune God, the Trinity. Now this is fascinating. I love, I love talking about Jesus. I love preaching about Jesus because this is wonderful. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you by the way you should go. Listen, when Jesus comes and steps foot on the Mount of Olives and sets up his kingdom, he can say this to the nation of Israel, verse 18, Oh, that you would heed my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river, and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. If you would have just heeded my commandments. It's amazing to me how that Isaiah lays out for us not only this plan that happens 
150 years after him, but then happens, he looks forward, this event that happens here pictures what happens in the end times. When commercial Babylon, when religious Babylon, when political Babylon, Revelation chapter 18, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, is torn down. That won't happen until the second coming of Christ. And this event that happens 150 years after Isaiah writes this adequately pictures what happens ultimately in the end time. And all Israel had you heeded the commands, my commands, then your peace would have been like a river. You know that Israel has not had one day's peace. All the wars, if you study it, tonight as we speak, they live under the threat of bombs from Hezbollah. They live under threats from other nations. And you know, had they just heeded the commandments of God and didn't flee after idolatry and didn't practice all these pagan practices and didn't be consumed by the law and do all these things, they could have had the peace flowing over them like a river. Look at verse 19. Your descendants also will have been like the sand, would have been like the sand, innumerable, and the offspring of your body like the grains of sand. His name would not have been cut off nor destroyed from before me. They tell us, historically speaking, that about 50,000 people came, uh, Jewish people came out of Babylonian captivity. That's going to pale in comparison to those faithful Jews who come out, that faithful remnant that comes out of the tribulation period at the second coming of Christ. But I remind you, there were many that did not make it out of Babylonian captivity because they practiced idolatry and they were judged in their sins because they turned from God. And he said, oh, the offspring that could have been. You see, when Israel turned their back on God, when they rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, God set them aside temporarily. He grafted the Gentiles in. God was fully just in doing so, even though he has a covenant with Abraham because of their sin. And he said, he said, if you would have just heeded my commandments. This has nothing to do with the United States of America, but I think of this often. Why would God allow the United States of America to get away with what he would not allow his, the apple of his eye to get away with? Oh, United States of America, if we would have just heeded his commandments, we are so messed up as a society. And I stand before you, I do not say this to be mean. I am telling you this because I love you and it's true. I'm telling you this because I can prove it from the scriptures. 
this gender thing we have is downright evil. It's not confusion. It's evil. It's an attack upon God, and God created a man and a woman, and it is an attack on it. I'm not being political. I'm telling you at the roots of this is evil. It's, it's atheism at its, at its core. Uh, some of even devil worship at the core, if you study it to the core of their being, and many people may not know this deeply, they just might be confused or whatever, but I am telling you this, it is an all-out assault upon God. It's an assault upon God. And when the Messiah comes, there's a coming separation. There's a coming separation. Just like in verses 17 and 19 I read to you that happened in Babylon, let me read this again in verse 17 with the thought of the second coming of Christ. Thus says the Lord your Redeemer, Jesus, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you by the way you should go. And he stands and he tells them, Oh, that you had heeded my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of sea. Your descendants also would have been like the sand and the offspring, the body, and like the grains of sand. His name would not have been cut off nor destroyed from before me. But here's the separation, verse 20. Go forth from Babylon. Just as you were set free, as the the children of Israel were set free from Babylonian, flee from the Chaldeans with a voice of singing. Declare, proclaim this, utter it to the end of the earth. We know, historically speaking, that not everyone left Babylon that was in Israel. And in the tribulation period, when God is primarily dealing with Israel and unbelievers, there will be some who will not leave. They will not come through the tribulation period. There will be a great separation that takes place. Even though God has always called His people to come out from among them, they won't. They won't make it. They'll die without Him and they'll go to hell. Utter it to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed His servant Jacob. And they did not thirst when He led them through the deserts. He caused the waters to flow from the rock from them. He also split the rock and waters gushed out. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. There's a, there's a, a, a uh, contrast here. He took care of his faithful people when they came out of e- uh, captivity from Egypt, from bondage of Egypt. He watered them. The waters flowed from the rocks. Those who refused, and you know, we know the Bible teaches us that in coming out of Egypt and bondage, that there was a whole generation that died in the wilderness that didn't get to see the promised land. We know at the end there'll be the separation between the sheep and the goats. I've raised goats, I buried more goats. They used to call me Kenny Kaborkin. Goats are dumb. They say sheep's dumb, but goats dumber. Listen, there's this separation 
that takes place. The calling out of Babylon pictures the final call in the end times of Revelation 18 to leave Babylon. Now you're sitting here and you're thinking, wonderful, I won't be here in a tribulation period. You won't. Thank God. If you're saved, you won't. But we all know some who are not saved who will go through the tribulation period. This is a prophecy to the nation of Israel that was fulfilled 150 years after it was given. But I think there's a few points of application I'd just like to quickly make that applies to us, even though this passage deals with him. Number one, saying you're a Christian is not the same as being a Christian. The condition of the people was, they, the condition was, I, they would say, I am of this city. I am of Jerusalem. I am of, in verse 1, I am, uh, I swear by the name of the Lord, I make mention of the God of Israel. I throw his name around, but I don't, not in truth and righteousness. For they call themselves after the holy city and lean on the God of Israel. That phrase literally means they say, they're people of this city, and they say they depend and trust in the Lord. Saying you're, Christian, saying you're a Christian is not the same as being a Christian. As a matter of fact, Jesus preached the best sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. How many of you have ever heard of the Sermon on the Mount? In Matthew chapter 7, he finishes the Sermon on the Mount with this story. There were two men. They both heard the same sermon. One decided to build his house on a rock, and one decided to build his house on the sand. The two men that heard the same sermon, the one who heard and did was likened unto a man who built his house on the rock. And when the storms came and beat vehemently against the house, it stood. The other heard the same sermon but did nothing with it, was, it, was akin to building on sand. And when the storms came and the rains came and the floods came and the wind vehemently beat against the house, great was its fall because it was not built on the rock. Jesus makes a distinction between hearing the word and hearing and doing the word. The same applies to Christianity. You can say you're a Christian, but that doesn't mean you're a Christian. Being a Christian means you're a Christian. Does that make sense? Very important. Number two, God's goodness has been revealed to us in His prophecies. Do you know that you are one of the most blessed nations? We have more resources available than at any time to study the Scriptures. You can take your phone... And it will read the Word of God to you for free. That's amazing. You can literally take your phone. You, I, I'm trying to think of a verse and I can't remember. And you say two or three words in that verse to Google. And it will take you and tell you where that is found in the Bible. Could you imagine if the Apostle Paul had that? He would have loved that. We live in a day where Daniel Wallace and his team at Dallas Seminary have taken in all of these manuscripts and they have digitized them and they put them in order, categorized them, and they can search through all of the manuscripts that we know that are existing in the algorithms 
and it will pick up all the words in all the different translations and, and of all the, the unity of the manuscripts is amazing. We live in that day. When I first started Bible college, when uh, we were going to study a Greek word, we would have to get out our concordance. We'd have to find the word in the Greek. We'd have to go get the number. We'd have to take the word, and then we would use our tools, and we would call what we parse the word. We would break it down in the tenses, and it's different from English language, and we'd have to go through all that manually. There were many steps. Now I click a button, and it lays it out for me. We live in that. And His goodness is that He has revealed His prophecies to us. He has revealed us Himself through His mercy and His refinement of us. That's God's goodness. Why do you parents discipline your children? Because you love your children. And you know that if you don't discipline them and they keep going down that path, it's harmful for them. The fact that God refines us, the fact that God chastises us, is proof positive of His deep love for us. And I'll be honest with you. Um, I read a book, my dad's reading a book, or has read the book, and, and, and Harry's reading it now, and some other people have read it. But I, it was one of the most challenging reads I read in a long time. I had to stop and go back and read, and, and gentle and lowly, talking about Christ's love for sinners and us. And I'll be honest with you. It's hard for me to fathom His deep love for us. And my understanding of it is so weak and anemic. I'm ashamed after reading some of these authors and how deeply they've unfolded the Scriptures for me and God's love for us. And that's revealed in His mercy. If if He didn't care, He'd just discard us. Let us go to hell. He wouldn't care. I love it how in the New Testament... They were, many were scoffing and saying, listen, you, you guys have been saying ever since he went into heaven that he's coming back, and where is he? Peter says, the Lord is not slack concerning his return, but is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. That is love. The reason God hasn't wiped the United States of America off the earth is because He is long-suffering and He loves sinners and He wants men and women to come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. The fact that He chastises us is an example of His goodness. Now, the Bible says no chastisement at the time seems pleasurable, right? But it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. The fact that God chastises us indicates that He loves us. I think it was J. Vernon McGee said that God doesn't spank the neighbor's children. Some of you all would like to spank the neighbor's children, but God doesn't. He only disciplines His children. And then lastly, those who are obstinate, who stubbornly refuse to repent, will have no peace. No peace. One time, and, and no one knows this person, I was counseling someone over and over for the same thing over and over and over. And we were getting nowhere. We're going through the scriptures. And finally, I said, Look, you ever wonder why you're so miserable? 
You wonder why all these things are happening in succession. Could it be because of your stubbornness and willingness to repent? You see, some people think repentance is a one-time thing you do when you turn from your sin and turn to Jesus in faith. No, repentance is every day in the life of the believer. And I have watched believers and in their flesh be obstinate. They know they're doing something that they shouldn't be doing and they know that they're, they're pursuing it and they know that they keep doing it and they think that you know, nobody's going to know or, or, or you know, God's going to just have to change. I'm just going to do it, whatever. And it's called being obstinate. And it's a serious thing. Being obstinate is serious. The Bible teaches us that there is a sin unto death. I know that everybody in this room wants to go to heaven. But I have not been with someone in human sincerity that says, I want to go right now. The only people I've ever been that way have been people who are suffering their life is coming to an end. They know it's coming to an end, and they want the Lord to go ahead and take them. But most people like us that are healthy and walking around, they don't say, man, I want to go to heaven. You start talking about death, we start thinking negatively. I want to tell you this. The best place on the face of the earth is to be in a place of peace with God. Peace with God. Now, I know that if you're saved, you have ultimately been reconciled unto God and you have peace, but you can't have full peace if you're not living if you're not living in the will of the Lord. If you're obstinate to his will, and I'm telling you, this is becoming more and more prevalent. We're going to have to deal with this more and more and more in churches as we go down the road and we become a more self-centered society. And we've moved from fact to feeling. Um, everything is feeling. The arguments of people feeling. Except it's all about feeling. And the more you go towards feeling, it pulls you away more, more away from the truth, the facts of the truth of the gospel and the more obstinate people become I was sitting with someone and I'm not preaching whether you go to church or not I would love for you all to come to church you're here I know that I'm just saying but I'm not the Holy Spirit Jr. I don't go around trying to make people feel guilty but a guy told me one time he said I'm saved but I don't have to go to church I don't believe in that I believe that you know I'm going to heaven and I don't need to be in church and my, my thought was why do you want to go to why do you want to go to heaven with church people if you don't want to go to church with church people? And they said, well, them hypocrites down there and blah, blah, blah. You know, there's hypocrites everywhere. Don't stop you from going to Walmart, the ball game, wherever you want to go. And, and, but this is, this is the, the reasoning we have today. I don't have to do, I don't have to do this. I don't have to do this. I, I believe I don't have to do this. I don't have to do that. And you don't. But let me ask you a question. What price, what price can you put on the peace of God? There's no price. There's no price you can put on that. Uh, 
we've had to practice church discipline in this church before. It was not pleasant. It's one of the hardest things we ever had to do. Church discipline is not for when people sin. Everyone sins. Church discipline is when people refuse to turn and repent of that sin. And it begins to affect the church. It's obstinate. Obstinance is when the church has to practice church discipline. And God will deal with obstinate people. Now, obedient Christians have nothing to fear. We can enjoy the blessings and peace of God. But interestingly enough, obstinate people, on the other hand, have only, listen to me, they have only judgment to deal with. Now, I know your sins were judged on the cross. But if you, if you continue in sin, you will be judged in your sins. You will. The man who, and I'm, I don't, I'm just throwing out, there's nothing in here that, no, I don't know any of the situation I'm saying. The man who commits adultery over and over again, Loses his wife, loses his family, loses his job. He's being judged in his sin. He's been judged in his sin. But if you're an obedient Christian, and listen, you say, well, what happens if I mess up? Well, if you mess up, you confess your sins. That's simple, right? But why is it so hard? Why do so many Christians run from God when they fail rather than running to God in mercy, pleading, confessing? Oh what oh what peace we often forfeit. The nation of Israel was an obstinate, stubborn, stiff necked, hard headed people. But before I throw stones at them, <laughs> sometimes I'm an obstinate, stiff necked, hard-headed person. Is anyone else with me? Yes, we are. And I would say this. The Bible teaches us it is the goodness of God that leadeth men to repentance. If you'll stop and see that God is rich in mercy, He's rich in love, He's gracious, we will want to repent of our obstinance. May God bless us and may we seek to live in total peace with Him. Not just saying we're Christians, but being Christians by His power, walking in the Spirit, relying on the goodness of God and His mercy. Can't do it any other way. You and I cannot do it on our own. Because the flesh is obstinate, the flesh is hard-headed, and the flesh is stiff-necked. But thank God, we're not characterized by the flesh, but by the Spirit of the living God. If you have the Son, you have life. 
Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Turn to Him. He really loves you. Surrender that stubbornness. Repent of it. And get the peace of God. It's well worth it. Father, we love you. We praise you. We adore you.